This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 191. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that our Village membership is open until the end of today, September 23rd. The membership is an opportunity to ask every single parenting question you have and get support on this journey. It's a space where we take our Tiny Humans Big Emotions and Reparenting courses and break them down into actionable steps with you, guiding you through the day-to-day of doing them. Each week, I send out guidance on how to do this work in your everyday life and then walk alongside you as you do it. One of my absolute favorite things is the true community that's rallying around you in the Village Membership. Folks come in with compassion and empathy, and it's really a shame-free, judgment-free space for you to pop in with your hard stuff or to get support and tools along the way. So come on over, head to our homepage, seedandsew.org. You can click right there to come sign up for the membership, join us in doing this work. All right, now in this episode, I got to hang out with Mariana, who helps me run the village membership. She is a school psychologist and mama of three, and she is Mexican-American. In this episode, we talk about her experience as an immigrant and how to talk to kids about immigration. We chatted about the systems in place, and I really hope that This can breed some empathy and compassion. I'm so grateful for Mariana sharing her journey. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everybody, welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today is a treat for me. 
I get to hang out with my friend, Mariana. You might know Mariana as the gal who leads our village membership. She is just a gem of a human that I'm so jazzed to get to hang out with, to get to do this work with, and really just do life with at this point from, from far away. But do life with <laughs> as we dream about being near each other. Welcome back to the podcast, Mariana. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a treat for me as well to get a list of time, <laughs> even, you know, just to have an opportunity to, to talk about all things seed and non-seed stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We get to go both ways. Mariana, can you share with folks a bit about your background, kind of where you came from and we're going to dive in deep to it, but can you kickstart us? Where, where did little Mariana begin? <laughs> Absolutely. So little Mariana began in Mexico. And I always feel like, you know, where are you from is such a complicated question for me because somebody described it as a tricultural kid. I was born somewhere, I lived somewhere for a very long time, and now I live somewhere else. And so I have all these you know, places that feel like home. But yeah, I was born in Mexico and I lived there until I was 12 years old. So many different parts mm -hmm. forming along the way. So you were born in Mexico. Where in Mexico were you from? Guadalajara. So it's almost like the Midwest of Mexico. It's The state is Jalisco. So if you've ever been to Puerto Vallarta, it's the same state as Puerto Vallarta. And so Guadalajara, or Jalisco is the land of tequila where tequila comes from and where mariachi music comes from. So that's what that state is known for. Fun. That's your party side. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, what led to you guys leaving Mexico, coming to the States? So my that? dad is an airplane mechanic and the airline that he was working for was going to start having flights to Chicago O'Hare. So they didn't have any like formal base, staff, anything. They were just going to start flying there. And so they asked my dad if he would get on the plane, get off the plane, check it, sign for it, and then go back. And so then they said, okay, this is working out really well. We're going to increase flights. Can you come here for two weeks? Sure. And then two weeks turned into a month and then a month became a permanent position. And so I remember my parents talking to my brother and I, you know, there's this opportunity. How do you guys feel about it? This is what it would mean for our family. You know, I was 11 at the time and my brother was seven or eight. And the first conversation was devastating because the biggest thing is we had to sell our choice. We couldn't bring our choice with us. <laughs> and the second most devastating was like friends, of course, and school and, and all these things, you know, but like the choice was what, what really made it difficult. <laughs> Really pushed you over the edge. Oh, that's funny. Of oh, that kid perspective. What a wild choice to have to make um, yeah. or to get to make maybe for some folks, but to be in that position, you know, I'm thinking of your parents now of everything that they would leave behind family, friends, culture uh, to head to Chicago, mm -hmm. probably a little different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have so much respect for both of my parents. My dad had to learn everything that he knew in English, you know, and he, he knew English before we came here because he had to apply for like a special license and things like that. So he knew 
sort of how English, the English language works, but, you know, culture is so different than just the language part of it. And my mom had maybe one or two years of English, but was very basic. So she knew, you know, very, very little compared to what my dad knew. Yeah. And what did that look like for you as kids? So in Mexico, we went to private school because public schools are typically um, just very low quality in terms of the type of education that you receive. And so our school had one or two hours of English every single day. And so we were taught the very proper English and the very, you know, appropriate ways to say things. And when my parents decided that we were going to move here, they... um, one of my mom's friends ended up being our English teacher. And so she gave us like additional classes to, to teach us more of the culture. She actually called reinforcements and, and hired a high school student who had lived in the States to tell us like how things worked. It was really funny. Like, this is how the lunch line works. And this is what you do. And this is what you don't do. <laughs> so, Oh, that's so sweet. I wonder how much of it like actually translated over into what you walked into. Yeah, I don't remember, to be honest, but I'm guessing not very much. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. That's so sweet that they were, like, working as hard as possible to, like, pre-teach, to front load, Mm -hmm. to give you, like, a picture. What memories do you have of, like, that transition? You know, we talk about transitions at SEED all the time, and we're talking about, like, going to school for the first time or, you know, getting out the door to get to work. This transition is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we moved in May and my mom wanted us to have like one month of trial in the school system. But then I think she felt sorry for us that she didn't follow through with that. And my brother and I were like, woohoo, because in Mexico, school doesn't let out until July, typically. And so you only have July and some of August as your summer. Um, And so my brother and I were like, May, June, July, like this is the life. Um, So I remember being excited about that. I remember our first night in our house, we had no furniture and we all slept on the floor in my parents' bedroom. And it was like scary, but it also felt so safe because we were all together and there was a lot of excitement and just like this new life. We get to new everything, you know, new toys, <laughs> new, <laughs> new furniture, new house, new possible friends. And so I remember a lot of like hope But I also remember at least the first two years were just so difficult because I wanted to make friends and I wanted to, you know, put myself out there and meet people and just like dive into American culture. And because of the way that my English sounded, people didn't or kids didn't really understand me. And I had no concept of what was cool and what shows to watch and what, uh, you know, stores to, to dress from. And I remember like wanting, to make friends and saying, hi, what's your name? And people were like, what? And then from that, I was like, okay, I'm not talking. Nope. I I don't like it. (laughs) You know, there was a girl who teased me (laughs) relentlessly, but then I made an ally and I remember her and I'll always remember her because she stepped in one day and she's like, no, you don't tease her. That's not kind. And if you tease her, you have to deal with me. And I mean, honestly, like the sky opened up, like, you know, I heard angels singing because I didn't know this girl. She was just a girl that lived close to me that decided to speak up and it meant the world to me. What a blessing. What was her name? 
Kristen. Kristen. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for taking care of little Mariana for us. <laughs> I hope we can all raise some more Kristens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so sweet. What, what did your parents do? I'm curious, cause you were saying like you're reflecting on it felt hopeful and do you have any recollection of ways that your parents supported you with that narrative of like, you know, I think, I, I think if I was moving to another country with my kids, a space where I didn't know the culture or the city I was going to really, or uh, much of the language, et cetera. And I was leaving everything that I knew and my comfort zone and my cultural context behind I think as a parent, it's so hard to regulate your own reactions and be mindful of your processing in order to show up for kids in those moments. Like you're going through so much that it's hard to hold space for the tiny humans. And so I'm in awe of your parents for being able to do that. But I'm curious if you remember any of the language that was like surrounding that. Was there was there freedom to express the disappointment, the sadness, the grief of that loss? Yeah, Yeah, there was. I mean, it was assumed that it was going to be hard. You know, there was not an expectation that we were just going to go, you know, or come and just be able to jump right in. And we talked a lot about it before moving. And I think what helped at the time is that the visa kept getting delayed. And so, oh, you're moving this time. Oh, no, now you're moving this time. And so, you know, we were waiting, but during that time, we talked a lot about what's going to happen, what's it going to be like, you know, and I grew up hearing my parents say, you can always come and ask questions. You can always come to us. And I think one of the things that really helped me and my brother is that they always told us the world is yours. You just have to go out and get it, you know? And so there's this, perseverance and this hard work mentality that I grew up with, you know, that if I want something, it's hard work, but I could get it. Yeah. Well, you definitely have that. That is how you show up in life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you work for a seat because you DM'd me and said, hi, um, can I make these tools in Spanish? (laughs) And I said, yeah, let's chat and hired you on the first phone call. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. That is how you operate in life. I, I'm so in awe of your parents. And their like foresight and ability to allow you to have, to to let you know it is going to be hard and that it's okay that it's hard, that something being hard doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong. And I think that's where the perseverance comes from when we can see the hard as like, okay, I can, I can do hard things as Glennon Doyle would say to us. And also want to recognize that there are different levels of hard. Not all hard is created equally. You've said it before, but that you didn't come here and arrive to a welcome basket. And this is where I hope that folks who haven't navigated an immigration process or who haven't had to leave their culture or whose culture is centered in this nation can really tune in and open up to the idea that we all experience hard things and that they're not all created equally. (laughs) That there are levels of hard that some of us do not have to experience. Yeah. What 
did the immigration status like or the immigration process look like for you guys? So I think, you know, I also wanted to mention when you were talking, it reminded me that, you know, I recognize there's a lot of privilege in the way that I came here. And it's probably one of the easiest ways to come to the U.S. You know, my dad had a sponsored visa. Everything was the right way, you know, and but it doesn't mean that it was easy and it doesn't mean that it was fast, you know, and like I said, there, there was no welcome basket, there was no case manager um, that kind of followed you to make sure that you were a-okay, but we, so we were here on a work visa, H1, and then my mom and my brother and myself were on like a dependence visa, which was an H2, so what that meant was that my dad was the only one allowed to work. And after five years on that visa, then we could apply for permanent residence, which is typically what people call the green card, which is not green and it's not a card. And then after being a resident for, I believe, five to seven years, then you can apply for citizenship. And that's when, you know, the... the major benefits of citizenship is essentially your blue passport and the ability to vote. So we started here with the visa, um, waiting for those five years to go by. The five years go by, we apply for the permanent residency. It's moving along. In the meantime, I turned 16. So that means no first job, no driver's license, you know, missing, missing out on things that were developmentally, like, um, what do you call them? Rites of passage. Mm-hmm. And so all my friends were like, oh, when are you getting your license? I'm like, mm, I don't know. I'm not, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, again, another type of hard. And is it the hardest thing in the world? No. But when you're 16, you have no idea, you know, and, and it was the hardest thing in the world. It was embarrassing and it was um, hard to have to explain my whole story to anybody that asked why. <laughs> um and then sometimes to be seen in a negative light just because that was part of my story. Yeah. Um, and the financial challenge of your mom not being able to work if she wanted to, needed to, that you guys were living off of your dad's income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so after the five years were up, so we're applying for permanent residency and then September 11th happened. And so what that did to our case and millions of other cases is that the government said, um, we're stopping everything and we're starting over. And so Ooh. that delayed the process another three years. So what took, what should have taken five years took like nine years, essentially. Okay, so what, in those nine years, you then like, you went to college, you, what, what, Can you talk me through like how this affected all that? Sure. So at the time I was a junior in high school when September 11th happened. And so it was right around getting your ACT scores, you know, ready for college, start looking at schools. Um, And I had to learn this as I went on my own because my parents didn't go to school here. They didn't know what the process was like. They didn't know the education system. And so I was not allowed or permitted to apply for any kind of federal aid. So the FAFSA form, I couldn't fill it out because I didn't have a social security number. I couldn't have a job because I didn't have a social security number. Um, I couldn't apply for any scholarships because I wasn't even a permanent resident at that point. 
I couldn't apply for um, federal loans, whether what they were um, like forgiven or not forgiven because of the, the permanent residency. And I couldn't apply for private loans either because they needed a co-signer and the co-signer had to be at least a permanent resident, which we weren't. So it's like, no, 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 no. Every time, you know, I try to look for like an out or a way to get money to go to school, it was a no. And I had dreams of going to, you know, school downtown and living in the city and just living my best life as a college <laughs> student. <laughs> and it just felt like, nope, not happening. Um, so what I ended up doing was I did a ton of nannying, a ton of babysitting. I mean, at some point I was probably babysitting five different families um, and paying for school to go to school full time, you know, out of pocket. And I went to community college for then because I just couldn't, I mean, I got into all the schools that I wanted to get into, but I just could not afford, and my parents couldn't afford it either because it was one income, you know? Totally. And college is crazy expensive. Yes. And it wasn't as crazy expensive back then, but it was still crazy expensive. So, you know, community college for two years and then on to, I chose the, the cheapest state school because of that, you know, like mm-hmm. I, nothing against where I went to school wouldn't have been my first choice. Again, I had dreams of going to the city and, you know, <laughs> being a fun college student in Chicago. But I, I had to pick the, the cheapest school in the state who rented um, textbooks out to students so that I wouldn't have to worry about buying textbooks and so that I could finish my degree, you know, within my four years. Oh, as like a kid. Like you were a kid yeah, having to figure I mean, this I, out. Yes. And I look back and I'm like, that's crazy. That's insane. I don't know. You know, and my parents, they try to help, but their hands were tight. They had no idea either. And so when we would do college visits, I'm like, what do you think? You know, what do you think? And they were like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you like it, if you think it's a good place, you know, and then the, the question at the end was like, how much is it? I'm like, uh, not <laughs> totally. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? 
You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild because I, oh, just like such a privilege check as I sit on, I don't know, so much student loan debt (laughs) over here, Zach and I both, that but like what a privilege to have student loan debt, right? Like I got to take out loans to go to school and that was never something that I had to question. It was just how much am I going to pay back? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I'm choosing my school based off of like how much am I paying back? But that I had that access, right? That you paid out of pocket for college, Without being able to have a job. A job. I mean, babysitting paid for my college. And, you know, and then there was some, I don't know how it happened or why it happened, but they essentially described my case. And they said, if you're on this boat, you can apply for a special permit that will allow you to have a social security for work, like in the meantime. And so that's how I was able to get my driver's license and my first real job at 18 or 19. Yeah, because that's the other thing, like even babysitting, whatever, you have to be able to get there and get home and get to college and like all all without a driver's license. Right. So that's, I'm, I, again, I don't remember the specifics, but that's what saved me and that's what really helped me keep going because otherwise I wouldn't be able to drive and I wouldn't have been able to have a second job. So all through college, I had two jobs, two or three. <laughs> so wild. It's frustrating for me because I know there are folks who are just like, yeah, just come here the right way, work really hard, and you can have access to all the things. And it's just, it's just not real. It's not that if you come here the quote unquote right way, you just get access to all the things or that if you work really hard, you just get access to all the things. Mm -hmm. It's so frustrating. Um, Yeah, I I can't tell you. I still, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I still get so emotional thinking about it because we went to the office of social security like two or three times and said, this is our case. Is there anything we can do? I mean, and we were looked like we were looked at like we were third class citizens, you know, and just a harsh no. And it was so like, you don't belong here. We don't want you here. Go home and stay home, you know, and I just wanted, I just wanted to go to school. <laughs> like I just wanted to be a better person. That's all I wanted. Totally. You know? And to pour into our economy, into it. Like you were trying to work here legally. And I think that's a big misconception too, that um, illegal immigrants or, you know, undocumented, you know, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them, they, they don't pay taxes and they do. You know, they 
absolutely do. There's no, again, I go back to like, there's no welcome basket. There's no, not like here's your driver's license and your social security number. And this is, you know, the rules of the land. <laughs> you know, this is who you see for this and that. There's nothing like that. Yeah. Oof. Gosh, I, w- I, I wish that this was just like taught more in school of like, this is what, you know, we, we say, or at least I learned in my very whitewashed history that, you know, we were the land of the free and people could come here. And that's what the Statue of Liberty was all about. And that it was founded as this place that people could come and, and have freedom. I'm putting that in quotes. And I wish that we more explicitly walked kids through here's what that looks like. <laughs> here's what it looks like to actually come. And here's the steps afterwards. And that's if you're able to come in the way that you were able to, where like your dad was already offered a job. You weren't a refugee. Mm-hmm. I wish there was more education around the logistics of it all, because I think it just gets painted as this whitewashed, like, look at us, what a beautiful nation we are. We just accept folks to come. And if they really want to be a part of our society, they can do so here. (laughs) That's just not the reality. No, actually, I mean, it's hard. It's a very harsh, harsh way that they treat you and look at you. I mean, from the moment that you have a, a visa, it's almost like you lose your name, your number, and they call you alien. And your number starts with an A and it stands for alien. And anything that you do until you become a citizen, what's your A number? What's your A number? Not, you know, who are you? What's your A number? And I have such strong feelings about that alien word because it's so dehumanizing. And as a 14-year-old, you know, it would make me cry. And I would think... I am not an alien. I don't have three eyes. I don't have four legs. Like, why are you calling me an alien? Yeah. Yeah. And this is looking, as you said earlier, like the privilege of coming to the States in this way. We're not, this isn't even looking at like you were a kid in a cage, you know, separated from your family. Not sure if you'll ever see them subject to abuse and neglect. It's mind boggling. It's mind-boggling to me that there's such dehumanization that we don't question. Yeah, and that it's not talked about. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's it's been more in the media because they're children, right? But what about the adults? You know, why are they not talked about as much? Totally, and it's in the media, but it's still happening. (laughs) It's not like it being in the media stopped it from happening. It was just like, oh, we'll talk about this. Yikes, man. When we are looking at like, all right, how do we talk about this? How do we support kids with the understanding and, I guess, knowledge around immigration and what this looks like? What do you hope to see happen? What are things that you feel like would be really helpful shifts for us to be able to make in terms of addressing this with kids? I think humanizing people is so important, you know, and and they may not look like you, they may not speak like you, they may not do things that you do, but at the end of the day, we're all the same. 
I think, you know, and I try to work on that with my kids because I would love if they identified with my culture one day and saw it as part of theirs. And I don't know if it's going to happen, but I would love for them to. And, and I tell them, you know, I'm from Mexico and your daddy is from here. And so now you are half this and half that. And what does that mean? You know, like, and they did ask me, they're like, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, our family loves beans and guacamole, you know, and we have it almost at every meal. Um, Not all families love beans and guacamole. And, you know, some families do, some families don't. But it's just, I think, again, just recognizing that, Everybody can do things differently, but it doesn't make them less or better. Yes. Oh, that's so huge. Like different isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I think for folks who have kids who are white and are centered in our nation, for them to be aware of the fact that our culture does treat different as bad and other as bad and less than and that we need to be raising the Christians who are going to stand up for the Marianas and say, no, she is also a human. And that a huge part of raising anti-racist kids is giving them the knowledge that we aren't all treated equally. That, that would be lovely, but that that's not the world we live in. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and I think that's the part that's often left out of this is like we want kids to know that, like, we're all the same inside and we're all humans, and I think that that's part of it, you know. And the other part is, and the world doesn't treat us all the same, yeah. I did, um, I don't know if you saw this, but the Barbie YouTube channel had a little video of Barbie talking about her friend and how she was treated differently because of the color of her skin. And they were doing a contest to see who sold the most stickers at a mall or something like that. But she's talking to kids about racism and how unfair it is. And I was just so (laughs) proud and moved by it. I was like, Hey, come watch this. Come watch this. Let's watch it together. Yeah. Go Barbie. (laughs) Yeah, It led to like a really nice conversation with with my oldest and it was you know we talked about how grandma sometimes is not understood at the store and people treat her differently so it's not all the time skin color it's the way that you speak or the way that you dress and why that's wrong yeah totally I think that that's huge I think it's a huge part of having this conversation and actually raising compassionate humans is recognizing I have referenced this before but it's like episode 13 of the podcast. I um, interviewed Tristan Reese and we were talking about gender. And he said in there that we have to raise kids who are prepared for the world they currently live in and have the tools to help change it. But that we can't, if we're raising kids in this like idealistic world, we're not actually preparing them to change it because we have to acknowledge what is before we can move to where we want to go. And I think it's really comfortable for white folks to not acknowledge what is. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable to talk about something you're not familiar with or that you don't feel like you can answer questions. 
Valentina's preschool teacher. Wonderful. I mean, I love the way that she was like, I don't know, but let's find out, you know? And so now as a parent, I'm like, I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> is this the same preschool teacher that we hired for seed? Oh, she's a gem of a human. <laughs> Another yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, you've brought lovely humans into our lives. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that that is key. And, you know, she did a workshop for the SEED certification, and she mentions that for teachers, too, in early childhood, the importance of being able to say, I don't know the answer, but we can find out together, or I can find out and we can talk about this tomorrow. And yeah, that discomfort for us as adults to say to kids, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're adored and you're regarded as like, you know, almighty and powerful to, to have to say, uh, I don't know. You know, it can be difficult for some parents and it can be very difficult in some cultures. And, you know, I think that's kind of where the change starts too, to acknowledging that it's better to learn together than to not learn at all. Yeah, and to just continue to pass on what the, the biased education that we received and not examine it and say, man, we, I was just talking um, in my stories about how that word bias makes a lot of us go, ooh, like I don't have biases, they do. <laughs> and the reality is that we all do. And when we can get cozy with that, that like, Every single one of us, someone reached out recently feeling frustrated that what we were teaching uh, was conditioning kids in a certain way. And I was sitting with that before responding and was like, oh, that's so interesting because for me, I think, yes, we are conditioning kids. We're always conditioning kids. We're always being conditioned. And when we can be aware of that when we can say like, oh, that's happening all the time from the advertisement that shows up on the TV and tells me how I should feel about my body or that person's body or every single piece of information that we receive, how people respond to us, whether or not we received love or adoration for certain things, what we did receive love for, what feelings were allowed all that jazz, like how we are responded to and what we consume is always conditioning us. And so every single one of us has come to adulthood with these biases and the social programming. And I think it's imperative that we acknowledge that, that like, oh man, hashtag not perfect. My niece uh, went through a phase where you would say, hey babe, how was your day? And she would go, not perfect. Uh, <laughs> perfect <laughs> perfect. Uh, I was like, what a high bar. Perfect. <laughs> um, but I think that that's really important to say that it's not that, that it's okay to critique how we were raised or systems in which we were raised and, and to acknowledge that we have benefited in the same way that like I have benefited from taking out student loans, right? That like that, was a privilege that I didn't realize until talking to you. You know what I mean? Like in the past, I was like, yeah, sitting on so much student loan debt must be nice for some folks to have their parents pay for their <laughs> college. Like, sounds great. Um, or to live in a country where college is accessible and free. But now hearing you, I'm like, gosh, what a privilege that I was able to take out loans and access college. 
No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where-are-my-keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where-are-my-kids kind of mom. <laughs> well, you're, Amy, more of a we-were-supposed-to-leave-35-seconds-ago mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. My parents always explained it to me this way, and I think it's what has kept me again, hopeful and optimistic. There's somebody who is always going to be, you know, below you struggling and somebody who is going to be above you thriving. And your goal is not to stump on the person below you, you know, or try to be like the person above you. Like you are on your own path and you do what you do you essentially, you know, and I think, and again, I carry that with me and I'm trying to teach my kids that, that sometimes things could be worse or it could be better, but this is our today. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I, I grew up in a household where it was like, there was always the look to the person below you or the person who's struggling and to lift them up, to pull them in, to support them to, and I, I appreciate that my parents like lived that day to day, but I don't think that there was a lot of education around for me specifically, like the things that I had access to because of the color of my skin or because of where I was born or because like there wasn't discussion around that, that I think for me as a parent now, like that's something that is important to me to bring into the conversation that, yeah, we can turn and support this person who uh, is struggling more than us. And what, why are they struggling more than us? Like what systems are in place that are leading to them struggling and us having a leg up, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that it's not just that they, I, Oh, it, drives me bonkers and people are like oh they just made bad choices I'm like oh no <laughs> oh no <laughs> no that's not <laughs> you know? how it works <laughs> in the same manner that if you looked at the people who are like 
have a trust fund or were born into financial freedom and wealth, they didn't just, you didn't make bad choices because you weren't born into that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so looking both up and down then to say, oh, then that's probably true for the person who's struggling in ways that I'm not. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, huge. Mariana, is there anything else that you would like to share about your journey here into the U.S. that you want to make sure people understand or that you would love for them to be bringing to their tiny humans? Um. Though I think there's another misconception that, you know, I'd like to speak to. Please. A lot of people say that once you become a citizen, you could just bring your family over. Mm. And that's not true. There are rules and stipulations. So when I became a citizen, I could only request immediate family. So my parents or my brother, but they were already here. And so, you know, I wanted to request for my grandma to come here. Um, and I was not able to, so we had to wait until my mom was, um, a citizen for her to be able to request them. So it's not, you know, (laughs) you don't get to request your second cousin twice removed from, you know, (laughs) totally (laughs) three marriages ago. It doesn't work that way. No. Yeah. Um, it's not like creating a wedding guest list where you're just like, who do I want to bring? (laughs) And every, every step of the way is costly. You know, I, it's, one application fee here, one application review fee here, there, and pretty soon you're into the thousands of dollars plus, you know, legal fees. If you choose to hire a lawyer, um, can you And go? you can't get a job. So good luck paying right. for it. Right. Right, right. right. So again, it's a different kind of heart and it's not just come here the right way. Sure. It's possible, but it takes a long time. It can be very costly. And again, I'm very aware of the privilege that I have coming here in the way that I did. Um, but working in a school, I've also heard stories that are heartbreaking of kids whose parents just put them on a train and hope they would make it. You know, of a student whose mom sent for her, but couldn't meet her at the at the border. And she had to spend, you know, weeks at like a halfway house, not knowing if she was going to be abused every night by the person who was in charge of this house. And again, it working in a school has opened my eyes even more so to the different types of stories that there are out there. And so, yes, mine is hard, but it's not the hardest. Right. When the, when we look at folks who, you know, we offer jobs to here in the States to bring them over again, quote unquote, the right way. It's our, it's folks who have that privilege already who are coming with a job because we've offered them a job. Right. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily the human who is trying to escape violence. And yeah, I, I think that that's, that's something that's a misconception that like everyone, you can just apply and come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no. Another thing is if your application gets tonight, you don't get your money back that you're out however much money you spend. And for example, for a tourist visa, it's 400 and something dollars. You get an appointment, it's a hearing, and you meet with somebody who decides if you have enough things to anchor you to your native country so that you won't come here on a work or on a tourist visa and stay. If they're having a bad day, if they're hangry, if they don't want to give you the visa, they're like, come back later, but we'll keep your $500. Yikes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, what a broken system. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it's, you know, and we used to have to go to Mexico to renew our visa and then come back. And we would just hear the stories in front of us. And there was an older gentleman who had a farm and he just wanted to visit his son. And the guy behind the desk was like, I don't see enough income here that would let me, let, that would make me feel comfortable knowing that you're not going to stay with your son. So I'm denying your visa. You know, and again, with the dehumanizing part. Totally. You don't make enough money for me to allow you to visit your son. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and eventually, you know, I did become a citizen. I My permanent residence was approved um, my last year of college, which I was like, oh, great, now what, <laughs> you know? But then it's like, oh, grad school, <laughs> oh, here <yeah>. I come. <laughs> and it was it was such a joy and such a, you know, to be able to apply for loans and know that I would have debt, you know, yeah. that I was allowed to have debt. I was so excited for that, you know. Wild. Well, I'm so glad that you had the support system within your family and the perseverance to get to where you are because you're an incredible human and our world is absolutely better with you in it and doing this work. I don't think we didn't share your school psychologist and a mom of three. And yeah, I'm just so grateful that you get to do this work that we get to learn from you. Thank you. I, I love, love being a part of seed and I say it every time we talk, um, but my hope is just to connect with people and to, you know, I'm so open to answering questions. And again, if I don't know, we'll find the answer together, but, <laughs> but if I can help somebody understand, again, the human experience or, or put a face to an experience that somebody's not very familiar with, I'm more than happy to do so. Yeah. And I love that. And I think that I mean, that's throughout seed. I just keep like being like, will you do this? Will you lead the membership? Will you create our courses in Spanish? And it, because I love, I love that you will always lead with that human first and that you do such a beautiful job of holding space for folks and getting back to like, what's that narrative that's running underneath the surface here? And what's driving and I think that's you know in relation to like talking to kids about immigration or any hard things I think first for us as adults saying like what's coming up for me around this and what am I bringing what what triggers you know like maybe when you heard the word privilege you felt like well I don't have privileges (laughs) maybe that was triggering and being able to just like lean into those I think that you're really good at holding space um, for that and I'm jazzed that we get to be able to offer this in English and in Spanish because of you. Thank you I mean I I can't tell you how much I love the reparenting course you know taking it for myself but now having the ability to to share it with other Spanish-speaking parents it's life-changing, you know, it really is because of those narratives, because we don't spend enough time talking about it. And I think so often we're on autopilot and I think we can't, we just can't live life on autopilot. Yeah. Well, we can't make change on autopilot. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Cause then we're just repeating right. whatever we've consumed. And I think so often we want to know like, how do I get my kid to 
do this thing, to be kind, to be empathetic, to be anti-racist, to whatever. And we forever come back to like, tell me more about your patterns and habits and narratives. <laughs> People are like, no, no, let's talk about the kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. like, no, I don't want to focus on me. I want to change them. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you do a really good job of, of balancing that and supporting our village. And I'm just so grateful for you. I'm so grateful. Thanks for hanging out with me. Uh, and if folks want to continue to hang out with Mariana and learn from her and engage in this work with her, she leads our village membership. So uh, we open it a couple times a year. You can hop on in and you get access to our Reparenting and Tiny Mints Big Emotions courses in English and in Spanish. And then she guides you through how to implement this work. What does it really look like in the day-to-day? And then does a live Q&A every week where you get to ask your questions and uh, just show up in community in doing this work. Um, so that's where you can find Mariana over at SEED, running our village membership. Thanks, babe. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.